Hi everyone, this is another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie and I'm here today um, once again with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Jeff Payne. Hi Steph. Um, so Jeff, being a romantic scholar, um, has come today to talk to me about um, Shelley mm -hmm. um, because it is the 200th anniversary of the publication of his poem, Ozymandias. Mm -hmm. So we thought that we would celebrate publication of this wonderful poem by bringing Jeff in to tell us everything he knows about Shelley, which is possibly <laughs> going to be a little um, not safe for children. <laughs> yes, we, we may need a, a censorship. We may need a parental, <laughs> a, a, a parental advisory, advisory on, on, this, on, this one. on this episode. But I thought we'd start highbrow and then we can perhaps degenerate <laughs> from there. Um, Jeff, would you like to read the poem I would. I, for I, us? I, I did think that um, probably, given that it's only a sonnet, Mm. Only a sonnet, that it is a wonderful sonnet. Yes. <laughs> um, but so short that yes. it might be a, a wonderful way of, uh, of introducing the subject because mm -hmm. Shelley's poetry is the thing that speaks largest about why we still remember <laughs> Shelley. Yes. So, Ozymandias. I met a traveller from an antic land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Why, thank you, Why thank Excellent, you. excellent reading. Um, <clears throat> a lovely, wonderful sonnet. What is, what's it going is. on here? Well, this, um, this sonnet for me is exemplary of many of the things that I love about romantic poetry. And they're the kinds of things that very often in the popular imagination get forgotten about the romantics. Um, in the popular imagination, the romantics are because of the, the associations between romance and what we call romantic, there is an idea that a lot of the stuff is about emotions and about emotionality and intense passion. And that's not absent no. from this particular poem, but it's not its central interest. Um, its central interest is, of course power, mm. um, the effects of tyranny, um, and so, it, so it's, a, I suppose, a reflection upon the nature of power and what it does. Um, it's also a reflection upon the relation between the human and the natural world, um, and about the insignificance of individual human life in comparison to the larger sweeps of time. Mm. And, and, and all of those issues sp strike directly, I suppose, to the heart of Shelley's core concerns throughout his, um, his, his oeuvre, he, he, over, over the course of his publishing life. He was always interested in social issues. He, he was one of those writers who... Um, had a very strong sense of an ideal world that might possibly be created 
Um, he wasn't unskeptical about that idealism, but 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 he, critically, for a long time, he he was kind of painted as a as a as a very um, narrow Platonist mm. in terms of the the, the 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 conflict between the materiality of of the existence of the world and a separate ideal world. Um, that we see reflections of mm. that influence and informs the world, but it's not it, it, it's not entirely achievable. But we we can get closer to the ideals of that world the more we study them and, and attempt to appropriate them. Um, I think Shelley, Shelley is is the uh, is the kind of figure who has an aspiration to recover that ideal world in some concrete sense, yeah. but is forever striving to find a way in which that might um, actuate itself. So this poem is, is 1818. Yes. What's going on at this time, both for Shelley and in the wider kind of context, Okay. that feeds into this poem? So at this time, socially, mm. we are sitting at the end of the Napoleonic mm. period. Napoleon is finally defeated in 1815 at Waterloo. Um, 1814, there is the the half victory, and then we have the final defeat. The mm. final, de- uh, and and in the wake of Waterloo, we have a transition in the way in which England is operating during the 1790s and the first decade of the 1800s. Um, England had become very militaristic. It had become repressive, socially conservative. Um, There had been opportunity for governments to repress political dissent um, in the name of preserving national security, which they exploited to the full. Um, And... Shades of today. Shades of today. Mm. War on terror. I mean, this was a war that went on, you know, really, you know, beginning with the the French Revolution in 1789 through till 1815. So mm. we've got 25 years of constant warfare, more or less. Mm. Um, we've got um, a government that has been used to having things their own way. Um, but we've also now got a standing army that doesn't have very much to do. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, given the end of the war, a whole raft of social issues that have been left on hold mm-hmm. for a long period of time that people have been willing to put up with because of the war and mm. because of their ability to subjugate their own individual desires to the social good. That argument kind of carried enough weight to get through to the end of the Napoleonic Wars. But following that, there is a strong agitation fermenting for political reform. People are hungry. There is not enough food. There are there are draconian laws in place that um, regulate the prices of food in ways that are entirely advantageous to the merchants and the upper classes, which means that in times of um, poor harvests, um, that there is not very much food around. 
Um, and so there is a lot of social unrest fermenting. Um, there is also, at the same time, these are the first, or we're, we're, we're entering into the, the, the main phase of the inter, industrial revolution mm. where um, there is more um, factory production of things, people being displaced from jobs, people dis being displaced from their places of work. There's more and more enclosure of lands, which means that um, people are being t taken out of the rural communities that they previously lived in and moved into cities or into other types of um, manual labour mm -hmm. that is not agricultural as it used to be. And so people don't know where they are. Um, because... The king at the time, George III, is suffering from a mental illness. Um, the, the apex of the system in its um, you know, ideally imagined form is missing uh, in action. The, the son who is meant to replace him, the regent, is widely hated for being a... Um, he is seen as a morally corrupt... Um, licentious figure who who doesn't do anything to secure um, the good of the people, and at a time where there is a lot of poverty, a lot of hunger, what have you, the the regent becomes a figure of uh, who upon whom can co be concentrated a, a lot of hatred, a lot of anger about the way in which um, the aristocracy in general mm. is is treating the lower classes. Well, he's living the, large while people. So are he's starving. living large while yeah. people are literally starving in the streets. Mm. Um, that's kind of the, the big picture. Shelley himself um, is in a very precarious social position, although it's a precarious social position entirely of his own making. <laughs> yes. So Percy Shelley is the grandson of Bish Shelley, who is a baronet, and his father, Sir Timothy, inherits the baronetcy. He himself is the eldest child. He is in line to inherit the baronetcy. Um, he has, during his childhood, a very luxurious um, childhood. He's sent to Eton College. He's sent to Oxford. Mm. It's at Ox Oxford that things start to go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So at Oxford, he, along with a friend of his get together as undergraduates do and write something a bit naughty. Mm. Um, they write a, a tract that um, there is no God. Mm. It's an atheistic tract that there is no necessity for a God, um, that in fact God is doing harm and damage. Um, that kind of expression would be still controversial enough today from certain prominent figures in yeah. certain yeah. communities. I mean, we our society is more tolerant of atheism these days than what they were in those days. At that time, um, even writing a piece like that was the kind of act that is going to get you in trouble. But Shelley doesn't do things by half. He's no. a very idealistic young man. He's very um, he's imbued with a strong sense of self-importance and self-righteousness. Which comes out of and his e very luxurious, privileged childhood. Right, yeah. privileged childhood. Yeah. He's just used to having everything his own way. He's got means. He's got everything. So he doesn't just send it to a printer, but he sends it to the heads of all the colleges at Oxford. He sends it to all the bishops in the church. <laughs> Right. So 
a pretty provocative action, right? The established church, it is the national church. Um, there have been religious tensions in England in the past where people have, where, where kings have been executed because of mm. the, the antagonism over, you know, the, the, the need for bishops. The idea of attacking God and the existence of God in this particular society um, to the very heads of the, the church, the princes of the church, um, the deans of the college who are also connected to the church, um, what have you, uh, is an action which is just um, incredible in its either bravery or stupidity, depending mm. on how you want to frame it. And people have read it both ways. Mm. Yes. And you yeah. can read and it, you, can, you know, there, yeah. there, there, there is an element of both. Mm. I don't think they need to be mutually exclu- exclusive. But to Shelley's surprise, he got kicked out of Oxford. Yeah. Now, it, it speaks volumes of the man that he didn't see that coming. Yeah. Um, but he didn't. It really does seem to have really taken him by complete surprise that he would be expelled from Oxford. He considered universities, stupidly at his time, and maybe even today, I don't know, to be places where intellectual (laughs) thought was to be encouraged and freedom of thought was to be encouraged. And they weren't. No. Um, They absolutely weren't. The established um, universities in particular um, were notorious in those days for being um, places where you received a very conservative, Mm. narrow, well-defined Education, assuming you received any kind of education as well. They were also the domain of the aristocracy by and large, and many aristocrats who attended college merely went there to be given a degree without actually doing anything. Yeah. Um, Byron, for instance, at about the same time as Shelley, attends Cambridge, um, and the main thing that he does there is he sets up some very lavish rooms, he keeps a bear as a pet in the... um, (laughs) in the stables, and he drinks and he, yeah. gambles and seduces young class. choristers. And yeah. he, doesn't, you, you, he doesn't go to class. He doesn't, mm-hmm. I mean, they, they didn't exactly run classes no. in the same way. They had a tutor. They would be given a list of readings. But if you got a good tutor, you know, the list of readings wasn't particularly onerous. And yeah. um, you'd probably done most of that stuff anyway while you were at school. And so it was really just an, a, an excuse to party for a few years before they weren't you went and the assumed. Yeah. They, they weren't they didn't need to have um, particular skills in order to do whatever they were going to be doing in the future because they were going to inherit everything. So Mm. who cares? cares? The the younger sons who went were going to be set up in the church, but at the time, you know, you didn't really have to know very much to be a... (laughs) particularly if you were an aristocratic member of the, the, yeah. the church community, you would probably have yeah, curate. curates yeah. and what have you to actually do the things like run a sermon or something mm. like that. So anyway, she- Shelley gets kicked out mm. of Oxford and it floors him. <clears throat> um, what's more, it creates a rift between him and his father. Um, his father is not happy and insists that he recant um, and renounce the publication, which Shelley... Um, to his credit, refuses to do. Mm. I think it is to his credit. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. you know, there, there's a degree of stupidity in it, pig-headedness, but, mm. you know, he does... Be- he, he has written something that he actually truly believes mm. and he sees an injustice in the actions that are happening and he says, no, this is silly. And he stands, I'm not, behind, and he stands it. Yeah. behind it. Yeah. So he does refuse to recant and his father refuses to budge. So he's essentially reduced to a position where he has very limited financial resources. The problem for Shelley is that he can never actually 
come to the realisation of what those limited financial resources means. Mm. So he continues to live throughout his life as though he's going to have those financial resources at some time. Um, he continues to borrow money from various people to promise and give money to various people very generously. He's a very generous man in terms of borrowing and giving money. The problem is that he doesn't ever pay his bills. So he promises money to people, grand sums of money for them to achieve particular projects, but they never actually, the money never eventuates. Um, he falls in, he doesn't actually fall in love with. He meets a girl, Harriet Westbrook, who he sees as being tyrannised by her father. She's a, she's a relatively respectable middle-class girl um, who is being forced to go to school by her father. <laughs> Very terrible. Criminal action yes. that it is. So Shelley elopes with her, takes her under his, under his wing, and despite the fact that he views marriage as a tyrannical institution of no value at all, he agrees to marry her. Mm. Um, neither family is very happy about this. Um, they don't, they're, they're not given a space to live. So they essentially become nomads going from place to place throughout the world. Uh, throughout the world, when I say throughout, throughout the English world. So yeah. in England to Wales, to Ireland, back to Wales, back to Ireland and England in various, you know, journeys. Um, setting up in various places and bringing in all of these experiments in, in a kind of a social, idealistic mm. mode. Um, during the course of this time, <coughs> Shelley becomes acquainted with William Godwin, yes, the philosopher, mm -hmm. and the father of Mary Godwin, mm -hmm. who, the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft, who is Godwin's wife. So a, a, a girl with incredible pedigree in terms incredible of Incredible. So Shelley is very taken with Godwin mm. as a philosophical thinker, um, a libertarian a, 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 who has written about freedom of love and free spirit and about the tyranny of social the social systems yeah. that exist in the day and the need to liberate people from such tyrannies. And, and Shelley is completely um, uh, taken with Godwin. He decides to, you know, to, to go and put himself at the feet of the master and become his disciple and um, agrees to take on all of Godwin's debts, which yeah. is substantial. Which is, yeah, many, yeah. Um, borrows large sums of money in order to be able to take on these debts. Now, in the course of his acquaintance with Godwin, he, of course, meets Mary and decides that he loves her, not Harriet. Um, he is an advocate of freedom of love and believes, in fact, that it's immoral to live with somebody who you don't love in the context of man and wife, and so therefore abandons Harriet entirely, who has just had given birth to their second child, um, and elopes with Mary Shelley and Mary Shelley's half-sister, Jane, who changes her name to Claire. Yeah. Um, they go to Europe, spend a couple of years between Europe and England, going backwards and forth. Wandering about. Wandering about, meeting Lord Byron, Byron. Mm -hmm. in 1816, where Shelley and Byron formed a very fast friendship that, led, that, that lasted um, until um, Shelley's death. Um, 
But the so this is where things start getting really complicated personally yeah. for Shelley though, because Harriet, his wife, is entirely bereft. He invites Harriet to come with him <laughs> to the continent with Mary and live with them as though she's his sister yeah. while he bears with Mary. He's also having an affair with Claire yeah. at the same time as with Mary, although Byron is also having, having an, an affair, affair with Claire, Claire yeah. um, which, is, which produces an illegitimate daughter. And Byron doesn't really like Claire at all. And does everything to discourage her and tries to get rid of her. But he sleeps with her anyway and has a child with her, which becomes a a really thorny... It becomes the the kind of one sore point of contention between Byron and Shelley is Mm. Byron's treatment of of Ada. No, not Ada. um, Um, uh, Allegra. Allegra, Mm. yes. So by 1817, Shelley has... Been back to England. He's sorry. So before before eighteen seventeen, um, Shelley Harriet Westbrook kills herself. Mm. Surprisingly enough, she didn't like this idea of hanging. She about didn't like with, the idea with, with Mary of Shelley and Claire about with yeah. Mary and Claire. She is reduced to a state of desperate poverty. Her family will have nothing to do with her. There's no money from Shelley's family to support anybody. Mm. Um, so Harriet is in increasingly desperate straits and decides in the end that the only way out is to to kill herself. Mary and Claire's other half-sister, Fanny Imlay, also kills herself because she also was in love with Shelley and can't bear the thought of being without him. So he's this figure who seems to have this very magnetic personality. I don't know whether it speaks volumes about the paucity of men <laughs> during the period or the, something about the character of yeah. the, the man when he was there in front of you or something like that. But he did seem to have this um, effect on people to, you know, people who knew him um, re, re, either really took to him or really hated him. And Byron was a very similar kind of mm. character, very polarising. Um, so he's got two um, women who have killed themselves at the fact of his elopement. The one thing it does do is it means that he can marry Mary now officially because his former wife is dead. But his family will now have absolutely nothing to do with him. There is no chance of a of a settlement. Um, Shelley's father does agree to take on the management of the other two children, only under the proviso that Shelley himself has absolutely nothing to do with them, so the, the two older children. But Shelley is essentially left without any means for supporting himself or sustaining himself. And he's got a collection of children with Mary he's as got well. A, he's got a collection yeah. of children yeah. with Mary as well. Um, and so he decides that the only thing he can do is go to the continent where he falls in with, um, or he reconnects with the Hunts, mm. who he has also known in England. Now, the Hunts, Lee Hunt is another interesting character. He's um, well... He's, he's maybe best known these days as being the model for Harold Skimpole in Dickens's Bleak House. Mm. Um, himself, another one of these figures who, um, very idealistic politically, um, with very few practical, pragmatic skills, who <laughs> lived skills. entirely... For, <laughs> so he lived entirely upon the charity of other people yeah. um, throughout most of his life. He had been prosecuted for seditious libel and imprisoned, um, for having written um, pamphlets, published um, newspaper articles that were 
um, derogatory of the Prince Regent, and he was forced into a kind of political exile. So Shelley um, and Hunt set up this kind of circle, uh, political circle in Pisa in Italy, where they um, where, where they become fast friends. They 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 work and what have you. So Shelley in 1817 is just kind of at the beginning of this era of finally having decided that England is no longer a place where he can live. He still is intensely interested in the political system there. He still has in the back of his mind hopes that his father will hop the twig and he will inherit. Yeah. And there won't be... His father has instigated chancery suits to make that inheritance as complicated as possible. possible yeah. So it's not ever going to be resolved any time soon. But Shelley has these kind of hopes. But at the same time, he's got no money to live on. And so he's in in enormous amounts of debt for those days, several thousand pounds, which are the equivalent of several million dollars in Mm. in today's terms. So it's serious. Seriously in debt. Um, If he were in England, he would be locked up in debtor's prison. Mm. So he doesn't go to England. He lives in Italy. But again, he's he's forever writing to friends and acquaintances for money and for requests. His children start getting sick. Yeah. They don't have enough money to live. His daughter Clara dies early in 1817. Um, William dies yeah. early in 1818. Um, so so um, at the time Ozymandias is written, is in the middle of this severe financial hardship, Shelley personally feeling oppressed socially. He's also got a very complicated domestic relationship with Mary Mm. um, where because Shelley believes in free love he feels quite um, okay with having lots of mistresses and not particularly inclined to try and hide it from his Did he try to talk her into having affairs? Yes, he tried to talk her into having affairs with Byron and with various other people. She weren't into it. No, but he kept saying, "Oh, it would be really intellectual." I mean, we didn't so. we didn't mention the fact that at the point that they elope in um, in 1815, 15, yeah. Mary Shelley is 15 years yeah. old, yeah. and he is only 20. Yeah, something like 23. That. 21, yeah, 20, okay. So they're very young. They're very young. Yeah, maybe 22. Mm. It might have been 1814 that they first. I don't remember. I don't exactly. remember either. Yeah, but anyway. They're, they're very, very young, but Mary knows herself well enough. She is a very intellectually precocious young mm. woman, and she knows herself well enough. So she is strong in the face of Shelley's mm. attempts to persuade her into doing things she don't want to do. And that causes conflict. So there's a lot of tension and conflict. Living in Italy at the time, Italy, like England, is in a state of political unrest, um, agitation for freedom from rule. Um, So Italy isn't a national entity as we know it today. It's a lot of smaller principalities and states um, which are variously under their own rule or under the rule of Turkish, uh, the the Turkish Ottoman Empire. And so there is an agitation for um, political freedom or from the Austro-Hungarian Empire as well. So, you know, there, there there are lots of it's very um, regional, regional yeah, yeah. Um, variations, and so Shelley finds himself living as an expatriate Brit in this community in Italy. He becomes involved with some of the political movements in Italy. Um, he's also very intellectually bound up to um, Byron and the other Romantic uh, 
writers around them, Lee Hunt and the Lee Hunt Circle. And that's when you get writers. that night that they do the ghost stories and then... Well, that's earlier. Runs. That's that's, yeah. a, that's, a, that's, that's, that's a bit earlier, 1816, yeah. in Switzerland. Yeah, when so they that's get when together. she... Yeah, yeah. yeah. She when, gets the idea to write Frankenstein. Mm. Yeah. Mm. But, but it still comes out of that same kind mm. of, you know, sense of community. And, and I mean, particularly the younger generation of scholars had... A, and, and, you know, there, there was Wordsworth and Coleridge and the other Lakers with the older generation. They had their kind of community, never an official designation that they just knew each other and admired each other's works and hated each other and <laughs> yeah. all that kind of stuff. But there, there, yeah. there was a lot of um, interaction. Shelley, amongst the, the younger romantics, was the only one who continued to admire the older romantics um, through the period, even though he... Um, repudiated their politics because they they became increasingly conservative. They became increasingly. Yeah. I mean, the older generation of romantics were children, were 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 teenagers at the time of the French Revolution, and thoroughly taken with the yeah. ideas of the French Revolution, and thoroughly disillusioned by the actuality yeah. of what took place during the Terror and during the the seventeen nineties and the de, um, the devolution as they saw it into the republic and under napoleon the the empire under napoleon mm. um and so they had repudiated a lot of those idealistic politics that they held as younger people um and so the younger generation of romantics um being young people couldn't understand the idea of maturation or change in in perspective and so they felt very angry and, uh, and strongly angry about the, the what they saw as the abandonment of the, the liberal cause by those writers. Um, Shelley was able to look beyond that at the poetry and appreciate it for its artistic endeavour mm. to an extent that Byron would never admit that he did. Byron was actually more admiring than what he ever would have consciously admitted um, but 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 you can see in his poems that there is um, as much homage and the satires that he produces on the the um, the older romantics again demonstrates an intimate knowledge of their yeah. works even as at the same time as he um, is sending them up. Um, but so Shelley, you know, even just the the choice of the sonnet form yeah. um, in terms of this is continuing on this renewed interest in um, more formulaic. Um, regularised standard verse forms and attempting to um, revolutionise them, to make them new, to make them different, to bring them into conversation with the interests of um, the, the political ideologies of the day. In a lot of Shelley's poetry, what we have, and we, we have this in Ozymandias, to get back to where, to get where back, we began yeah. a long time ago now, um, with Ozymandias... It's 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 that conversation between the the individual living in the here and now and the 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 evidence of the past, the evidence of the old world, and the way in which that can inform and bring new knowledge or help us to understand the way things really are. Mm. So the function of the remains of Ozymandias, who, which is the Greek name for Ramesses II, um, an Egyptian pharaoh who was uh, widely known as a very despotic ruler, um, that becomes a really useful emblem for uh, 
you know, look at this human remains a man um, in the face of, you know, he had this immense power to build these massive monuments. The, the, the utterance on, on the pedestal, look on my works, you mighty in despair, appears to have the original intent of look at the might of these works and understand how insignificant you are in mm. relation to them because I am far more mightier than you. But it becomes heavily ironised in the poem mm. because of the, the fact that such might is nothing in the face of the, the encroachment of time, the, the natural forces of the desert overrunning the... the, mm. the so even the this area. mighty ruler is reduced to rubble. Is reduced to rubble. And so it becomes mm. a, a mechanism for offering commentary. You know, here is a, an old verse form talking about old things and we're bringing them into the present day and we're talking about things that are happening right now. We're talking about these high and mighty empires and um, people living in England and Italy mm. and in Austria and mm. Turkey who are um, who are ruling despotically yeah. as Shelley sees it. And the implication clearly is, you know, this is what is going to happen. This is the fate of all human mm power and might um, so it, it, it's kind of running it together now in a lot of Shelley's other poems there is always this political conversation Shelley himself is a really significant figure in terms of leftist political movements throughout the 19th century yeah right he's mm. um, he, he is highly influential on Marx and Engels if yeah. no one else yeah <laughs> And the British Chartist movement used some of Shelley's poems as kind of anthemic um, mm. refrains for for them to to galvanise um, support, I suppose. So there's this overt interest in 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 real politics, laid over the top of artistic experimentation, mm. laid over the top of engagement with conflict and turmoil in individual and personal life. And there's a there's a real dedication though in this poem, even though the, the human is destroyed and reduced to rubble, the what is there still is the is the is the um, remains of the art yes. that can prompt that thought, that kind of contemplation. And, and it is through then also the sonnet that you can, even, you can think even, about. Even in its fragmented yeah, and exactly. ruined form. And fragment, fragmentation and, and ruin is also an important yeah. um, artistic interest yeah. of, of the romantics, the romantics yeah. in general. So even the remains of this artwork that testified to the kind of um, the sands of time, I suppose, destroying it, um, even the, the, the contemplation of just the rubble is enough to make you think about about what happens to mm. power, what happened. And that act of mm. contemplation yeah. in itself becomes therefore a political act. Yes, exactly. I mean, po Shelley, in a, in, in a far more forceful, concrete way in the defence of poetry, an essay that he wrote a, a couple of years after this, um, claimed a very high status for poets. Poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. Thank you, Steph. That's yeah. exactly <laughs> the line, right? Yeah. He viewed... And, and so po by poetry, what he means is imaginative writers, Peter, mm. people who don't just deal with 
the facts mm. of, of of the world. So he, the, he it's not just the like prosaic writers. you know journalists or pamphleteers or something. That's yeah. right. But he, but he's not also he's also not just talking about people who write poetry. poetry yeah. He he means people who are engaged in sincere artistic pursuits. Mm. Um, those are the people, the people who engage imaginatively, who with the remains of what has gone before. There, there's a strong emphasis in Shelley's conception of poetry and what it is and does in knowledge of the past. One needs to be aware of the mm. past, what has gone before, a careful, close study of the philosophers and of the scientists, and so not only of the past, but also of the new. Shelley was re, you know, really interested in all current... Um, you know he he's, he is Victor Frankenstein. Yeah, but he was a very in, and he was a very kind of dedicated reader. Very dedicated yeah. reader. Mm. He he read all the Everything, latest journals yeah. and and you know in it's it's often said that you know in in this period we don't have the the strict separation of disciplines mm. that we are used to today. So if you mm. um, if you are a gentleman. You are expected to be across all of the latest developments in natural history, mm. and in poetry, and in philosophy, biology, and in biology yeah. and chemistry, which you see everything. in in Frankenstein, right? Yeah, right. So the, you know, the, the, this is the kind of figure that he is, and he's very interested in. So, what happened in the past? Mm. What exists in the in that past stuff that is of value and that continues to resonate today? And how can that be brought into conversation with things that are happening and things that are important now, not only in the big world, but also in in the personal world? So then also, how does the person, and this is another overwhelming, uh, overwhelming interest of the, the romantics, is how does the personal extend to the political? So Wordsworth's Prelude, which is the great epic of the Romantic Age, is a poem about the, de- the the individual's development into the self as the poet. So Wordsworth biographical poetry, yeah. poem about himself becoming a poet mm. in his life. This is the, the, the great overwhelming interest of the Romantic Age. And, and Shelley is interested in that sense in terms of, you know, how can interest in an individual's life, personal circumstances and what have you feed into an interest in, in what else is, is going on. And, I, I mean, again, that's not strongly in this poem, but just that opening sentence, I met a traveller in an antique land. It's a very mundane opening to a, mm. to a poem, right? It's, it's, it's a, you know, I met, hey, this guy. I met this guy who'd been somewhere. Yeah, and he told right? me. And he like, told me some stuff. It's like what I did on my summer holidays, right. you know. And it, that, As that's, a narrative, yeah. it's really mundane. And, and when I lecture on this in first year, at, um, in, a, in, a, in a first year program, I kind of do a real disservice to the poem by reducing it to a narrative, mm. and we we engage it in a, in a in, with it in a kind of narrative way. I have a really awful one sentence summary of the poem, um, which is very bland, <laughs> deliberately bland and mm. devoid of detail, in order to to make some points about you yeah. know narrative elements and what have you. But you know, to extend on that, you know what the, what this, this poem does is it it juxtaposes this mundane beginning with the grand mm. um, historical element. Right? And it's and, and it's a, such a beautiful encapsulation of that um, belief in the past fitting into the present because mm. we are using the ancient, very ancient past to feed into um, our contemplation, political contemplation of despotism. And also you, you have the turning of the instruments of oppression mm. upon the oppressors themselves. That's right. Right? 
over it, 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 it time tyrannizes over time tyrannizes yeah. over and yet so this becomes Marxian Marx's version of history mm. right um, the 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 the, uh, the 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 oppressed will always overpower overpower the oppressors and the 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 tools of repression will become the instruments of their own destruction mm. right the, the, this in Ozymandias is exactly the same mechanism that Marx kind of instills into his um, ideology, which mm. becomes so influential for 20th century artists and writers in and history, and what have yeah. you, in history. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Shelley is really interested in that, in, in that notion as well of being able to use... So the, the carving mm. takes on a new life when recontextualised and brought into conversation in a different way. Um, in a different place, in a different time. It completely shifts its meaning. Mm. And so the audience are invited to recognise that pattern of being able to take something old and, and, and bring to it something new. I feel like packaging it up and sending it to Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, well... Look what time will do to you and your power. Mm. Fake news. Mm. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Hashtag fake news. Um Yesterday you told me an interesting story about mm. Shelley that is, is kind of related to all of this um, stuff and kind of encapsulates, I think, even though it's really funny and that's why I want you to tell it, I think it, it, it encapsulates the, the nexus between Shelley's like, actual convictions and politics that we see is very um, laudable mm. and having his heart in the right place, but the kind of bumbling way he sometimes... Yeah, so this about it. Th- this story that I told you, it comes from a period of, I think it's 1814. So prior to this. So prior yeah. to this. Um, and Shelley has is on his travels through England with Harriet Westbrook and Harriet's sister Eliza, who he also hates. Um, so this is prior to Mary Shelley. Prior to Mary Shelley. Um, and they fetch up in a place called Tin Year Allet which is a, a Welsh name meaning under the hill. Mm-hmm. It's very atmospheric. Yeah. <clears throat> it is very, very atmospheric. Ferric. Um, and what this, it, it's a place where um, some very well-meaning people had decided to set up an embankment project to reclaim land from the ocean, mm-hmm. to allow poor people to have access to land, which they were becoming increasingly spare, um, so that they could grow food for themselves. So it's a very, very noble, project. noble project, idealistic, ultimately ill-fated, mm-hmm. um, little chance of actual success given the limitations of the, the landscape and what have you. But Shelley comes to this place and he just falls in love with the project and thinks that it's wonderful. He has, not long before this, been in Ireland. And at the time as throughout much of the 17th, 18th, and 19th, and 20th mm. centuries, yeah. Ireland is a place where there is a great deal of social unrest, um, yeah. resistance to English rule, um, and Shelley goes to Ireland to agitate for reform, emancipation of Catholics, um, better conditions for the peasantry and the working classes what have you. He puts lots of people's noses out of joint um, and essentially has to flee the country to avoid being locked up. This is a, a, a fairly typical pattern. Running theme in Running Shelley's theme life. in Shelley's life, yeah. right. He publishes a lot of um, proto-unionistic pamphlets at the mm. time. 
Um, he gets involved with the, the prototypical working unions there and therefore puts the noses of a lot of powerful industrialists and landholders and what have you in the local area out of joint. He gets away from there. He comes to Wales. He, he washes up at this project. And with deliberate, you know, with, with typical enthusiasm, he throws himself wholeheartedly into the project. He somehow ingratiates himself with the guy who is the head of the project. He becomes the, the, the chief secretary for generating funds for the project. For, and he starts writing off letters to all of the power pe powerful people nearby um, Lecturing, he, he, we're talking about a 20-year-old uh, man, young he's man, just been who's just been turfed out of university, been to Ireland, been had turfed to flee out Ireland, of turfed Ireland. out of Ireland. Um, he has been disinherited and disowned by his family. Um, but he just has this magnetic personality yeah. and this ability to um, convince the people who he's around that he he's there he's the answer to all their prayers and all their dreams and so he inserts himself into the project he becomes integral to it he promises lavish sums of money from himself and says that he's going to generate all this extra money from the local magnates he starts writing off letters to all of them in a very lecturing hectoring antagonistic tone to which surprisingly they take issue mm -hmm. Um, he does generate funds. He's not entirely unsuccessful. He has pieces published in the, the press and what have you. He was, he was a great pamphleteer. He was very good at, at dashing off prose writing. In fact, William God, Godwin um, insulted Shelley's... You know, he, he, um, when, when Shelley got Godwin to read through Leon and Sithner um, prior to its publication, um, Godwin um, told him he shouldn't publish it and that his review of Godwin's own novel that had just been published was a far better production, and Shelley couldn't... <laughs> like, it was just, you know... But Godwin was quite perceptive because Shelley was a very good um, polemical prose writer. Yeah, he was really yeah. good at, at writing that kind of, of stuff, and quickly and for publication. So, you know, he, he did a lot in terms of raising the profile of the project and what have you. But in, in the process, he um, manages to piss off almost everybody who's powerful in the local area, to the extent that one of them decides to send somebody along to kill him. <laughs> so Shelley is at home one night. He, he's had a servant who, of his who has been locked up for political agitation himself, who has just been freed from jail and has just come home from jail. And he, Shelley and the servant are sitting up late that night with um, Eliza and Harriet in the drawing room, and somebody shoots through the <laughs> the, the bedroom uh, through the living room window um, at Shelley. Well, no, I, sorry. At this stage, he comes into the room and he threatens Shelley with a pistol. But Shelley himself has two pistols loaded next to him because he's clearly he's always <laughs> well. The, the, people argue about what is actually happening in this yeah. circumstance. Some people believe that the whole thing is a hallucination that Shelley had, had under the, the influence <laughs> of some kind of drug. There seems to be sufficient evidence that something, something did happened. actually happen to discount that theory fairly uh, comfortably. Mm. Um, but, but actually, that's the story that his friends put out closer to the time, you know, after Shelley died, when, when they were trying to 
tidy his life up a little bit to make him a little bit more palatable because mm. during his lifetime he was social, mm. he was untouchable. He was an atheist, he was an immoral character, he was a bankrupt, he, mm. you know, the, the, he had everything social against him and he, he couldn't um, be mentioned in polite mm. society. Um, anyway... The, the 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 individual comes in and threatens him with a pistol. Shelley shoots at the guy and hits him in either the arm or the leg. The exact location of the hitting is unresolved. Um, <laughs> and the man leaves saying that he's going to come back and take his revenge. Right, But so essentially when he comes in and threatens him and the, the family, it's essentially, you know, you've got to get out of town or things are going to go horribly mm. for you. Shelley shoots him. He vows revenge. The women go to bed, they're in a state of panic, but Shelley sends them to, to bed and, and he decides that he and he's also in a state of panic um, and the servant, everybody's a little bit panicked, as you would be after somebody's mm, coming to your house, house. And, and, and threatened to shoot you. Um, somebody takes another shot at Shelley through the window of the house and misses. Um, goes through his dressing gown that he's wearing. Oh, wow. The bullet passes through the gown that he's wearing and enters the wainscot. <laughs> <laughs> this is so 19th century, yeah. Um, at which point, Shelley, the very next day, well, I think that, that very night, they up sticks and they remove to the house of the manager of the project, who is also one of the people who has sub... Has, who has behind closed doors been sending stuff to other people saying get this guy get rid of this guy yeah. somehow we've got to get rid I've of got him. to get rid of this guy <laughs> got to we'll get go rid away. of this guy he's a real pain etc yeah. um so he goes and stays there and then they they, they flee back to ireland so they get the hell uh, again, out of dodge. they get the hell out of dodge city mm. and and you know again as you, as you said you know at the beginning you know when we were starting off from this the story i think that it's really you know just so it speaks so strongly to yeah. to the nature of the man that he can be so politically idealistic and yet so unaware of the consequences of the actions yeah. that he takes. Because I'm totally on his side politically. I'm like, this sounds like a great project. It should be funded. Let's protect poor people. Let's give them jobs and right. money. Great. Right. Progressive, wonderful. Unions, also great. And what's more, the kinds of people who he's pissing off and antagonising are exactly the kind of people who are... Awful, and yes. he should be, and he should be agitated, agitated, yeah. and but the unawareness of the, I suppose, the fact that they have this power that that that, that will enable them to take action of the kind that they do, mm. um, and he's seemingly being unprepared. People postulated the reasons that he had the pistols was not because he was expecting an attack on himself, but that he was worried that people might come after the servant who had just been released from jail and that government agents might be going to come along and, mm. and make trouble because this servant was being taken back into the house. It wasn't that he actually anticipated any attack from the, the local on magnates on him. Yeah. And the fact but see, that laudable was, again, he's protecting his servant. Laudable in that he's protecting his servant, but unaware. And yeah. it's... A, it's I mean, for me, Shelley as a figure is... I mean, he, he's, he's a type who serves still as a rich vein of satirical humour. So he always reminds... Uh, when, when the young ones were big in the late mm. 80s and early 90s, Rick Miles, people's poet, yeah. right, always seemed to be a heavy satire of Shelley. Um, there's a comedy series on Netflix at the moment, Cuckoo, where, oh, where a, a young girl brings back this American 
boyfriend from she goes to on her gap year to Thailand and, and comes back with an American boyfriend who sees himself as a philosopher guru and he's he's got all of these high minded ideas but he's also completely clueless mm. um, and the father yeah. in the in the mm. the situation is aghast and is doing all these things to try and get rid of it it's very funny it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a great British yeah. humor but again it's a very Shelleyan kind of figure of this you know very young man yeah. with a very um, it's difficult with Shelley to say exaggerated view of his intellectual capacities because Shelley was a very bright man. Like, you know, he, yeah. you, you can't accuse him of being a dummy. No. He thought very deeply. He was widely read. Um, he engaged really seriously in that mm. process of artistic endeavour. Of course, he had the capacity to do it um, in terms of, like, he didn't have the money, but he, he had the ability to convince people he would have the money eventually to keep on mm. lending him more and more money in order to be able to do it sufficiently that, that that he was able to spend the time. And he was also able to neglect all of his social duties or social responsibilities. See, with all the good stuff that we say about his political idealism and what have you, a lot of the people who suffered at the hand of the unpaid bills are, of course, the tradesmen and yeah, workmen right. who supply exactly. him with all of the, the essentials of everyday life. And Every place that he leaves, of, yeah. he leaves with all of his bills unpaid. And they apply to his father to pay them and his father refuses to pay them. But see, um, this is where I think his privilege comes in because he's right. grown up in, you know, in entire privilege and he's never had to contemplate all of this. And so that gives him this, this absolute confidence that he's just going to get away with things. Every, everything will be paid for eventually. Yeah, eventually. it's all just going to work out in the end. He's never had to sweat on it. He's never had to worry. And yes, he does later um, because he, he, you know, he's constantly poor. But because he has that inbuilt confidence that comes from this in, entirely privileged background, he never has to think about or he thinks he doesn't have to think about all these things. He just blunder through and everything will turn out all right in the end because that's the pattern of his of his childhood. I mean, he has to life. continually negotiate loans. So he, yeah. he can't entirely not think about it. He does, yeah. he, he does, and he does occasionally pay bills. But he doesn't, but he's always <laughs> confident that it's going to work out. Right, right. And doesn't and it, have that awareness of like, oh, I'm really And, and, and you know, again, it's, it's this idealism about the future and the idea yeah. that it's all going to work out in an idealised yeah. kind of sense at the end. That I'm helping to bring about. Mm. Yeah. So he's, he's really laudable in one sense, but also terrible in another. Mm. And his, and his mm. treatment of women is something that I just cannot... Yeah, well, I mean, so that's another thing that we haven't <laughs> yeah. really touched upon. But yes, his, his, his treatment of women... You know, again, it's it's not he's not entirely alone in his um, bad treatment of women at the time. And, and one day we're going to do our podcast time. on who was the worst romantic. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. And it's going to be a really <laughs> close run competition. Yes. <laughs> um, and and you know, as with Byron, mm. like Shelley and Byron seem to be the cl- the, the standout mm. front runners, right? You know, oh, the you, worst you can't romantic. get the yeah. worst of uh, in terms of personal character. Um, and yet, with both men, the evidence of the people who knew them well mm. suggests that there was something about them that was, you know, so th- th- they were both fiercely loyal friends who had a great deal of care for uh, their servants, mm. for the people around them. Byron less so than Shelley. Shelley was, you know, really, you know, had that egalitarian philosophical idealism that saw that people should be treated equally. Mm. Um, And so his treatment of women 
devolves from his unwillingness to play the social games that were expected. And because of that, he becomes a figure who seems to provide an idea of liberation for women from the strictures of a highly regimented society. In other times, at other times, we've been talking about Jane Austen and the way that she is working over this issue of um, the, 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 the way in which women are so... Um, carefully regulated to the point that they have so little room to move. Well, Shelley's response is in a way, or you know, Shelley seems to offer a, an avenue, a, 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 mm. a new position for women to move. They don't have to be married in order to express love. Um, they don't, that, that, that children should be cared for. And Shelley was a, a, a caring-ish mm. father. He was ineffectual. He, he couldn't was better provide. than Byron. He was better than Byron, and in fact, he cared for Byron's, Byron's children, chi- yeah. child when Byron refused to do so. Um, but the fact was that he, as always, was completely too optimistic about the way in which the the social effects of what would or how many people would get behind or would be would be able to accept the liberties and licences mm. that they were taking with social decorum. Yeah, so he, he was destroying Mary Shelley's reputation irrecoverably mm. and Claire Claremont's as well and all of the women that he slept with and he had no perception that that was destroying them. No, well, and in fact, you know, so he himself play, places no value on such reputations. So for him it's not Yeah, it's anything... not an issue. But for them, it's an issue. But for them, it's an issue, and yeah. particularly once they're out of his circle, and especially once he dies. Uh, yeah, Mary, um, Mary Shelley's got a very long life after he, after he dies to to get on. You know? Right, mm. and it's not until very near the end when her son mm. finally does inherit Parish, the Shelley yeah. um, um, uh, baronetcy and the estates and what have you that there's any kind of financial security for her. And until mm. that point of time, she's. Um, living on her wits and, Mm. you you know, so there's a way in which, thank God, because what might have happened to the works that we have of hers if that weren't Weren't there and what might have happened to Shelley's poetry because her... She she collated the the, the complete work. She preserved his reputation at a time uh, during the period where he was unmentionable. to the extent that he that Shelley became so profoundly influential on romantic writers, you know, like Browning, who, you mm. know, who, who himself is one of those really mm. awkward yeah. figures to treat to deal with in terms of mm. relations to women and yeah. But I like that he was so. I, I think there's a nice little kind of irony that we might leave it um, with today because we've completely run out of time. But um, I like that he was so terrible to women and kind of destroyed their reputation. But in the end, it was a woman who maintained his his mm. literary legacy, and we have mm. Shelley today because of the efforts of Mary Shelley. Mm. So mm. maybe she got the last laugh after all. Mm. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jeff. That Thank was you, absolutely Jeff. fascinating, and that story, which I didn't know about about um, Shelley being shot out through a window, is one I will. He did a little sketch. Oh, did he? I, yeah, he, he he's got the he drew a sketch of the the figure that tried, and the, this is one of the pieces of evidence that people often bring in to think it was hallucination because it's in, it, it's a it's a cartoonish kind of <laughs> ghoulish figure waving you know oh, guns and what have you through. We'll the, have to get that and put it in the show notes yeah, so people yeah. can have a look. That's that's. <laughs> 
That's amazing. <laughs> I love that story so much. So thank you for bringing that. Um, that was wonderful. Um, so this has been another episode of From the Lighthouse. If um, listeners could please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be immensely helpful. Thank you to those who have already done so. It's been really, really wonderful hearing your lovely feedback. Um, we'll see you again in a week. And thank you once again, Jeff. No worries. Thank you, Steph. Thank you. Bye.